All right, well, today we are starting the next uh, the next four or five weeks. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 3 to 11, which when you really look at the whole context of it, this is one story of humanity's fall away from God. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we get God's answer to all of this. And that is to call a certain family through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that he will continue to pursue humanity that he has created as his special image bearers in this world for his purposes, for his glory, and for our flourishing. And so when we look at at, um, Genesis chapter 3, and most of our Bibles have this simple title, The Fall. Well, it's one step. It's the first step, (laughs) But it is really just one step, and and it starts with Adam and Eve, but it continues. And and the common theme throughout it all is that humanity seems, from the very get-go, bent on doing things and pursuing wisdom and status apart from relationship with God and even against his wishes. So even... Adam and Eve transgressed this command of God not to eat from the tree, and, and then... Uh, there's this there's this sense that God has given specialness to life, and, and Cain transgresses that by by killing his brother Abel, and and then there is this um, this weird passage, and I'm not sure how much we'll get into it of all the interpretive options that are around it, but there's this uh, distance between the the sons of God and daughters of men, and that gets transgressed, and that's part of the. The, the problem that leads to, to God saying, I'm, I'm just going to wipe it out and start over with Noah. And, and he does that. And then Noah doesn't last long on the other side of that. After the covenant's made and God says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, increase and fill the earth. He kind of reiterates the same uh, covenantal uh, command that he gave Adam and Eve. Well, then we find uh, Noah drunk in his tent naked and that comes up as very much a part of this text in in, in Genesis chapter 3 and, and his you know and then his sons uh, a couple of them act rightly and, and one of them acts wrongly and this sets up this there's always this tension uh, between siblings that runs through this and, and then we get the tower of babel where people uh, humanity doesn't want to be separated and scatter over all of the earth and so they try to centralize but god has commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it but they want to stay in one place and so all the way through there is this running theme that humanity is trying to do life apart from god and it just doesn't work out Genesis chapter 3 is where we start, and this is where we get relationships broken. We get the, 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 this is where we start talking about sin. The, uh, the word sin does not occur in this text. The word fall does not occur in this text. Um, these are things that we kind of define. Uh, these are defining moments uh, that fill out our definition of those words. But there's kind of three three main thoughts that we're gonna we're gonna explore a little bit as we go through this uh, text, and and it's these broken relationships are the result of sin, and sin is first of all a transgressing of God's commands. Sin is a transgression of God's commands, and that's what uh, even the serpent talk about first. Uh, and then we see the result of that. We transgress God's command, and that is sin, and that brings shame and harm. 
uh, to our relationships, to ourself, to our relationship with God, and to our relationship with the rest of creation. Let's not forget this. Sin has a creational impact. Uh, so sin is transgressing God's command, which leads to shame and harm, and sin comes at a great, great cost. Uh, your relationship's never the same once you sin in that relationship, once you break the trust of that relationship. Okay, so let's get into this. Let's read Genesis chapter 3. I'm actually going to start back one verse in uh, chapter 2 and verse 25 because there's keywords that uh, translate here into the next chapter and it sets actually everything up. So 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. But the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. And so here we have our first parents, Adam, Adam and Eve. Actually, Eve doesn't get named until the end of the chapter. Throughout this chapter, uh, she is not given a name. She is just Isha, woman, wife. Um, in, in Hebrew, uh, it's Adam who is related to the Adama, uh, the ground, the land from which he was taken. So Adam and Adama, they're almost more titles uh, than they are uh, specific names because the Adama is the ground and Adam is the ground creature. Uh, the creature that is made from Adama is called Ha'adam, the Adam. Uh, and uh, names in Hebrew never have the the uh, uh, article attached to him, the ha. Uh, so by saying ha-adama or ha-adam, uh, the, the Hebrew text is, is referring to the human or, or the, the, that which has been made from the ground. And this is important because his relationship to the ground is really what's at stake in, in this whole passage. And, and, it, and it ends up being the thing that is cursed in the end. So we're going to look at this text with, with these, with these uh, three uh, points again, that sin is a transgression of God's command. That's the first thing that happened. Uh, first six verses, we have the serpent coming to Eve. And, and now the, the interesting thing about this is that um, we have to wait until like Revelation, the end of the book here, to get a hint as to who is this serpent? Why is he talking? Uh, it's not until Revelation chapter 12 that there's even kind of a hint that this is a satanic moment. Uh, it's, uh, but then again, what we have in, in the word Satan in the Old Testament, it's ha-satan. And that, again, it's a definite article. So it's more of a description than a proper name. And it just means one who opposes God. An opposer or an accuser in and again, we have to wait really until we get to this chapter 12. And now we have like in verse nine, the great dragon was thrown down. He's in a war with the archangel Michael, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown out with him. But I mean, for a good chunk of this book, we don't know who this serpent is. It's, uh, the, the text says, you just read the first verse, the serpent, ha-nahash, it's, it's just the serpent, a snake, was more crafty. And this isn't a bad thing, actually. Uh, it's morally neutral because in the book of Proverbs, the same word is used a number of times as, as a desirous thing. Someone who is acting in wisdom. And so this is almost like a wisdom text. And this, is, this ends up being why Eve takes the fruit, right? It's because it's about gaining wisdom. Um, he's more crafty. Uh, but the if, if the author wanted something negative, he had a lot of words to choose from. And, and, and if it was simply something that was uh, about his ability to be wise and sneaky, he had other words to choose from. But he chooses word, uh, 
chooses a word that has exactly the same sounds as the word naked. Arum and arom. <laughs> um, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew, they sound almost identical, and there's a pun going on here. Uh, the author is making a, a, a pun out of this. The serpent was crafty, but the serpent was also a beast of the field, which God created. Now, he spent a lot of time here to tell us this isn't a supernatural, you know, uh, being in this moment. This is, you know, just read it for what it is. You know, those of you that want to take the Bible really woodenly, literally, this is just a snake. Like any other, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is a created being. This isn't some other being. God is not at war with this being. God has authority over this being right from the get-go. And it's I find it interesting. The woman doesn't question that she's talking to a snake. And, uh, later on in, uh, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Numbers, uh, about uh, chapter 22, we get Balaam. And his donkey are having a conversation. And Balaam doesn't go, why are you talking, donkey? Donkeys don't talk. How am I, why am I having a conversation with my donkey? It doesn't seem to occur to him that he shouldn't be having this conversation with his donkey. He just engages in the conversation as soon as the donkey starts talking. That's kind of what we got here. Snake comes up, starts conversation with a woman. Woman just engages in a conversation with the snake like it's no big deal. It's kind of funny, actually, but here we are. <laughs> Snakes and donkeys talk in the Pentateuch. Who knew? He said, he said, did God actually say this? And here, obviously the serpent knows something about, about God's words. You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Well, if you go back, God said you can eat from any tree in the garden. So what Satan's doing here, what the, what the enemy is doing, what the serpent is doing, is he's casting doubt on people's memory of God's word. And he's sowing a seed of doubt. He's sowing a seed of mistrust that maybe God doesn't have your best interest in mind. And maybe there's a way for you to look after your best interest. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so, of course, we, we, you know, most of us know this story and we've heard the story a lot. And we know that God didn't say don't touch it. He said just don't eat of it. And so what was this part of the problem that, that there's this heightened um, expectation or, or this fence around the Torah as, as much later Judaism would go. God commanded this. So in order to stop that, we need to, we need to establish some rules, you know, so that we don't even get close uh, to breaking this rule. Um, there's no discussion as to whether um, Adam has told Eve this or or how that all went out. Uh, there, there's you know we're left with a lot of guesswork. We're left with a lot of questions out of this text, if we're really honest with ourselves. But here, so so actually, the the serpent only speaks twice. <laughs> Very effective communicator. He only speaks twice. But the serpent said, you will surely not die. Now, God had said, on the day you eat of it, you will die. The serpent says, you're not going to die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And that's where the serpent ends. Now, the fascinating thing to me is that this is exactly what happens. Did the serpent actually lie? Because what does God say in the end? Flip over the page. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. So that actually was correct. Now, did man only know good before and not evil? <laughs> uh, he seems to get both at once. But here's the thing. He took it. Without God's permission, without God's okay, without re recognizing, and this is the other thing, remember what humanity was created to be. The very first thing God said, let us make man in our what? Image and likeness. Here the temptation is to become more than what you were created to be, but in doing so you become less than what he has created you to be. You will become like God, but she already was. It's a denial of creational intention. God already said he created humanity in his image and after his likeness. The serpent is holding out that God is holding out on you to become more authoritative, more like him, free from any constraints in your life. You will then be able to decide for yourself what is good and what is bad. You don't have to rely on God's parameters to discern good from bad. You can do it on your own. And, and this is the biggest problem we have, right? It's this moral ambiguity. It's this, we just want to live in a world where I live my truth, you live your truth, and we'll all just kind of flex around this wishy-washy, there's no moral absolutes. Because we all want to take charge for ourselves. And do it apart from God. This is, this is what it says. For um, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Hey, it's, it's whatever it was, right? It's always pictured as an apple. We don't know what it was. It's just a tree that's got fruit. She sees it. Looks good. Looks yummy. Let's eat it. It was a delight to the eyes. So, so it would satisfy a hunger physically. It satisfied the eye um, aesthetically. It was beautiful. And it was desired to make one wise. To grow in wisdom. And this, this, is, the, this is the catch. This is the big thing right here. It's all about grasping wisdom without the fear of the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One leads to understanding. Here, the serpent is saying, take it for yourself. Grab it for yourself. You don't need God for this. You don't need to be afraid of him. He's not going to follow through on this whole thing about killing you the day you eat of it. Oh, it'll be, it'll be great. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not grasping something against God's commands. Sin is a transgression of God's commands. Now let's look at the, the results, what happens right away. 
shame. Then their eyes were both open. This is what the, the serpent even said too, right? Um, you will not surely die. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Well, it happened. Their eyes were opened. And what did they see? Oh my goodness. I'm running around naked. Like they didn't know that before. <laughs> but now it brings shame and it brings the urge to hide, to clothe, to cover. And all of those trees that were given for man's blessing now become a place for man's hiding. He, he, they, they both, they, they run from each other, they hide from each other, and they hide from God. Sin brings shame and harm. That's what the whole next section is about. The eyes of the both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And now here is, here's a key uh, phrase. And this comes up over and over in the Pentateuch. The sound, the voice, the noise of Yahweh. If you would hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This was back in, I think, Psalm 104, 105, somewhere in there. Uh, there there's these psalms that talk about uh, the sound or voice, uh, the noise of the Lord. The same thing happens over and over in Deuteronomy. Listen to the voice of God. God is speaking. Hear his voice. If you hear his voice, then shama Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. And, and hearing isn't just the physical function of airwaves going into our ears and hitting our eardrums and our brain processing that as communication. Uh, to hear is not just to listen, but to live, to obey what we hear. So the voice of the Lord is coming, the sound of the Lord, the kol Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's actually in the spirit of the day. In the, in the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting. It's not the cool of the day. It's the ruach, which is spirit, wind, breath. That's what God breathes into Adam, his ruach. The, the spirit hovers over creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And, and here it is in the, in the ruach of the day, in the, in the spirit of the day at this time. The presence of God. The man and his wife hid from the presence of God or from before the face of God among the trees of the garden that which God planted to bless them to feed them to provide for them for them to care for now becomes a place of hiding in shame from the God who made them the key question that this text is asking is whose voice are you going to listen to? And how are you going to respond to the voice? The woman told me, the serpent told me, I listened to the voice of my wife. I listened to the voice of the serpent. In other words, I didn't listen to your voice, God. I listened to other voices. Whose voice do you listen to the most right now? Why do you listen to those voices? There's so many voices in our society, in our world, especially right now. You know, is it the voice of politics? Is it the voice of partisan, uh, you know, uh, 
politicians? Is it the voice of science? Is it the, the, the voice of Facebook? Is it the voice of somebody you found on YouTube that just agrees with your approach to life, uh, that you live in this kind of uh, echo chamber vacuum, that the only voice you'll listen to is the voice that gives you what you want? Or is it voices that challenge you to, to, to maybe rethink how you're doing life right now and who you're listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? Over and over in this text, the, 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 the issue is not what you do, but whose voice are you listening to? And then how are you living out in relation to that voice that you're so hopelessly attached to? Is it the voice of God or the voice of the world? Or is it your own voice? See, she takes responsibility for this. Go back. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. Now, here's the other interesting thing. Uh, I, the woman saw that the tree was good. Up to this point in Genesis, when somebody saw something was good, it was always God himself who saw that it was good. Repeated over and over in Genesis chapter 1, right? He saw that it was good. This is the first time it happens with somebody else seeing and declaring something good. But it's not good. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man. The questions that, the, that, that humanity is asked here in, in verses 9 to 13 are so critical because here, before we even get to the curses, before we get to what is called the proto-evangel, the, the, the first gospel about um, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, uh, before we even get there, God is acting in grace in this moment of their failing by asking questions. God asks questions, and this is absolutely critical. The first question he asks is, where are you? Now, when, what's the first thing you remember ever doing wrong? You know, as a kid, what's, what's the first moment that you remember? I, I can remember so clearly I did something wrong. And I either got caught or I really, really was afraid of getting caught. One of my early memories, I was probably, we were living in Fort Langley, so I was probably three or four year, not three or four years old, grade three or four, maybe even up to grade five. I remember being in the, the uh, grocery store, the IGA or whatever it was in Fort Langley. There was only one, a uh, small town, kind of like here. Um, and there was, you know, we don't have this anymore, thanks to COVID. And it was kind of gross to begin with because kids could stick their hands in these. But like the bulk candy bin, there was like this mountain of like candy. It's kind of like, you know, um, the, there's a candy jar in our, our secretary's office. You know, Brenda had that and Lindsay's kept that going. Thank you, Lindsay, uh, for keeping the candy jar going. Uh, I love Werther's. Um, but I remember in this supermarket, there was this mountain of candy and I took one. And I remember being terrified of being caught. And so I hid 
of course you you hide that you hide it in your pocket you make sure and you're wandering around the rest of the day wondering if anybody saw you i remember a, another situation this would have been even earlier than that than this was uh this was in Langley, so this is because we, we were in Langley for a little while, and then we moved to Fort Langley. But I remember this other situation where my friends and I, um, <laughs> gravel driveway is not good for kids, okay? It's really not good, especially for boys probably about age 5 to 10. Um, but we were having a rock fight, okay? Um, you know, hucking rocks at one another on, uh, on this friend's driveway right next to the house. And I remember standing at the end of the driveway, grabbing a nice big rock and whipping it and watching it curve through the window of my friend's house. And I remember exactly what I did in that moment. I ran like crazy all the way home in through the door, down to the basement, and locked myself in my room. And when my friends came, I launched myself out the door and wrestled my friend to the ground, and I can't remember what I screamed, and then I... I don't know what I did after that, and I don't know what the outcome of all of that was. We probably ended up paying for it. Mom and Dad, you can fill me in on what happened after that, but, you know, that was, you know, the instinct to run, to hide, to get away from the shame of the moment. This is what we do. This is always what we do. When, when we do something wrong, the first thing that we do is we either make an excuse for it or we run and hide from it or we hope it goes away or that nobody noticed and we just want to escape the moment. But God comes to us and he says, where are you? Now, you know, here's, here's something you gotta think through. <laughs> God's omniscient. God knows everything. He is outside of time, the beginning and the end of time. Everything in history is an open book before him. He doesn't need to ask this question, does he? And yet he does. And as you continue to read through Genesis, and, and Pastor Ben will probably hit on this next week, you know, God comes to Cain and says, why are you downcast? What's your problem? Uh, he comes over and over to people and asks probing, searching questions. Because God is interested in relationship with us, first and foremost. Where are you? In, in uh, John Goldingay's Old Testament Theology, uh, Volume 1, Israel's Gospel, he says this, The question gives Adam and Eve the chance to decide to face God for themselves. You know, just like when we're kids, and we do something wrong and our parents say, hey, what happened here? It gives the child a chance to emerge freely. If it is done wrong, it has the opportunity to take part in putting things right. Yahweh's question is the first expression of God's grace in this gospel story. Where are you? Whatever you've done in your life, Whatever you feel that God could not forgive you for, he is right now saying, where are you? Because I'm here to walk with you in the cool of the day, in the garden that I planted and put you in so that we could be together. And I want to know where you are. Would you come to me?
Adam responds, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear, shame, and hiding. Who told you you were naked? God's next question, how, how, how did you come to discover this? Why, why are you living in shame right now? Have you transgressed my command? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to? Again, we, we wonder, you know, God could have put two and two together in that moment, right? <laughs> well, he kind of does, but he, he does it in a question. He does it to elicit a relational response. He doesn't say, you obviously have disobeyed my command. Therefore, get out of here right now. I don't want to see you in this house again. God doesn't do that. What does he do? Oh, who told you you were naked? Did, did, you, did you break this rule that I set up? Again, he is inviting a conversation. It's not a closed deal. God is still pursuing the relationship right here. Again, I, I'm going to quote from John Goldingay again because I, I, I think this, this challenges some of our thinking about how God knows us. And, and his omniscience, and perhaps when it comes to relationships, God chooses the path of discovery over everything else. Here's, here's the thought. In Genesis, God has supernatural knowledge, but he doesn't know everything. He asks questions. He investigates. He tests to find out what is in the heart. Again, God does not seem to have looked into their minds to discover what their reaction will be or to project forward into the future that is already present to God as the one who covers all time so as to be able to witness their response as it happens. If some such possibility was open, God chooses not to take it. God's knowledge of us comes about through having a relationship with us. God lets people reveal who they are God's not knowing everything is thus another aspect of the gospel. I know you're probably going to have to sit with that for a while. I know I have. But here's what I think he's getting at, and I think this is, this is so true. Relationship isn't relationship without discovery of one another. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God on a discovery pursuit with his people. That relationship requires communication. It's a back and forth thing. God's not some distant uh, God who said, I've created everything and I know everything and I know the beginning from the end and therefore you can't surprise me with anything and I will just sit back here and I will not be affected by anything because I know everything. I know how you will fail. I know how we will have to flood the earth and, and I know that you will uh, break my commands and so I will obviously be aloof from it all and I will feel no pain. The Bible actually tells us that God feels pain in these moments too. 
that when God looked down in the days of Noah and he saw the world evil and, and humanity's hearts bent on evil, it pained him deeply. We, we don't have a distant, unemotional God. We have a God that feels. We see that in the life of Jesus Christ. As he's tired and as he's impatient sometimes with his disciples, as he's angry with the, the, the money changers in the temple and he's, he's confronting the Sadducees and he's weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. God is not emotionally neutral, ever. And he pursues us for relationship because he wants us to know him and be known by him. And so he asks the questions. Where are you? Why are you hiding in shame? Would you come to me? And, and, and the pain of it comes out in the last question. Then God said to the woman, verse 13, What is this that you have done? I love the, the brevity of it in Hebrew. It's just three words. Mazot asi. What is this that you have done? You now these questions uh, press into this matter so deeply. Again from John Goldingay. If the first question is designed to encourage self-revelation and the second to elicit information, then the third is a rhetorical question, more a statement than an inquiry, a statement about the terrible nature of what has happened. And it is a cry of pain and or anger, perhaps more likely the first, as Genesis is elsewhere explicit about God's pain, but never about God being angry. Another aspect of the gospel thus appears. God is not a person who relates to the world with supernatural indifference or in cool rationality. If the world is created with laughter, it is wrecked in anguish. God is not a person who relates to the world with supernatural indifference or cool rationality. Our sin pains our creator. It hurts him. This is mostly what I want us to think about today. We could, you know, go in and unpack all the curses and all this other stuff, but I think, I think this is enough for today. I think this, this is enough to wrap our minds around and our hearts around and to ask why, why does this matter to us? Because sin, sin is first of all, the transgressing of God's commands. It's, it's living life on our own apart from the wisdom and the purposes of the, the, the one who created us. And we're only in chapter 3 of the entire Bible and already we're in a mess. And it's not gotten much better. Sin is transgressing God's commands. But sin is bringing shame and harm to our lives and to our relationships. And it's, this is kind of the beginning of uncreation. Everything God created to be good, to be satisfying, to be a, to be a blessing, to, to be uh, filling us with life and purpose and courage and, and, and 
in forward motion. And here we, we hit the first act of decreation and shame and harm and relational breakdown start to emerge. The, the, the woman who was taken out of man's side to be a partner with him, that this egalitarian side-by-side -side ruling and reigning over all of creation, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and he gave them the same task, the same amount of authority. Here in this chapter, we have the beginning of the rift and the war between the genders. It's a result of sin. It's not a result of creation. Sin brings shame and harm to every single relationship. Humanity to God. People with one another. Women and children. It's not just that, you know, you're, the pains of your child birth process are going to be increased. But there's the whole pain of motherhood. Raising those kids is going to be a painful experience and Eve's going to learn that in the very next chapter. But there's shame and there's harm. And sin comes at such a great cost. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So, what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? What does this help us with in life in this moment? First of all, the reality is, is that our world is broken and sinful and self-centered through and through. And without the word of God and the spirit of God working in us and us submitting ourselves to him and it, Because God's still speaking, right? Even though the relationship with humanity is completely broken in this moment, notice what doesn't happen. God doesn't shut up. God doesn't leave us on our own. God comes to humanity, says, where are you? God comes to Cain and says, what's going on? And God calls Noah, and God calls Abraham, and God calls David, and God calls the prophets, and God sends his son, and God speaks in and through his apostles, and we have this book of his communication because God kept on pursuing the relationship with us no matter how far we've fallen. And this is a great thing for every single one of us because every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God Romans 3.23, but we are reconciled by his holiness and his justice in and through the provision of Jesus Christ. So how does understanding the origin of sin and its consequences help us to see our need for a savior today? I think it's simply this. We've all listened to the wrong voice. Whether it's the voice of media, the voice of our Facebook friends, the voice of the YouTuber, the voice of ourselves, the voice of whatever. We've listened to voices that are not the voice of God. And rather than saying, rather than, you know, in this moment, Eve could have said, you know, can you just hold that thought? Did God really say, I'm going to go check with him because we got a pretty tight relationship. So, uh, serpent, you just hang out here on this tree for a bit. I'm going to go talk to God and then I'll come back to you with the answer. I, I just need to clarify it. 
Which voice have you listened to? Have you gone back to God for clarification? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Because we all listen to the wrong voices. At some point or another, in every day of our lives, we listen to the wrong voice and we make the wrong choice. And we all need a savior from that because we're hopelessly self-centered. I think it's uh, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, defines sin as this, humanity turned in on itself. The absolute self-centered nature that we choose to live in every day. Second question for our hearts today, how do you need to receive or respond to the gospel, the remedy for our sin today? What is it that you have been listening to that has led you away from God and his word? What is it that is producing in you maybe not the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the sinful nature, anger, fear, jealousy, rage, divisions, factions, envy, now, those are, those are so real right now in our world, aren't they? Divisions, factions, envy, uh, anger. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. If, if what you are pursuing and the voices you are listening to are feeding your divisiveness and your anger, then you are not listening to the voice of the Spirit. You are listening to the voice of the deceiver. Because the voice of the Spirit leads you to love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Life and wholeness. How do you need to receive and respond to the gospel today? I mean, there's so many. Pick a sin. Pick a self-centered way you're trying to live your life right now. That is the place for you to come to God and say, here I am. Answer the question, where are you? Just say, here I am. I have sinned. What have you done? Just just answer these questions that God asks in, in these verses in chapters 9, uh, verse 9 to, to 13. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you that this was wrong? Or, or, or why is this shame in your heart and is it leading you to me? Uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4 or 5. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and no regrets. But worldly sorrow just kills you. Leaves you stuck in regret and despair. And God just wants us to be honest with where we are and what we've done. And then he offers his grace in the midst of that. So what do you need to do today? How do you need to respond to the sin in your life, whatever it is, and reach out to God for his remedy? And lastly, what sin do you need to confess before God and perhaps another person today? Make this, make this practical. Confession. You know, one of the things I think the, uh, the Protestant Reformation got wrong is they hucked out confessing our sins to one another. That's one of the things James says at the end of his book. You know, pray for one another and confess your sins to one another so that you will be healed. 
You will come to a place of wholeness when you come to a place where you can confess your sins to another person. If we don't confess our sins to one another, how do we think that you know going to a holy God is any easier? If, if you're afraid to confess to a good friend your failings, but you're not afraid to say, hey, God, I screwed up again, and I'm messing up, and I'm doing this wrong, and I know it's against your will, uh, forgive me. You know, I think you've got a really warped view of God's holiness and justice and the cost of the cross. Because it should be way easier to go to your buddy and say, hey, man, I'm just screwing up stuff in my marriage and my parenting again. Uh, any, any help with that? Any, any, you know, it should be way easier to do that than to go, go to God in prayer because he's holy and just. But let's remember in the midst of all of that what his holiness and justice has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And again, I want us to read because this comes out, uh, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, what we earn, we've worked for it, we earned it, we got it, you know, it's on our pay stub. Death is on the pay stub because of what we have simply done. But God gives us this gift that costs us nothing and costs him everything. It's the gift of God. See, we can be righteous before God, have our sins cleansed, wiped away and have that relationship with him restored and the relationships with other people on the path to healing because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Listen to this. Romans 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I'm just going to read this. In the midst of this, there's a sentence fragment that everybody in church has probably memorized, but we Again, it's one of my pet peeves. If you've heard me say this before, I'm going to keep saying it because we need to get beyond Romans 3.23 and read 3.24. We need both realities in our lives and in our hearts. Listen to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And I'm just going to close with that. Because our relationships are broken because of sin. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with our, our husbands or wives are broken. Our relationship with our kids are broken. Our relationships in our church is broken. Our relationship with our, our earth is broken. The, the, the ecological impact of sin was right there. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice that God only curses the serpent and the soil. He doesn't curse the people. He says, because of you, Adam, the Adamah is now cursed. Sin has global ecological ramifications. We were designed to take care of this place, not destroy it. But in our self-centeredness, it's exactly what we're doing. God's got to create it all new through Jesus Christ. 
But here I want us just to pause and to pray and to give space for the Spirit to work in this moment. So let's just turn our hearts to the Lord. Lord, there are so many ways that I am failing. Where I do not listen to your voice, where I flee from the sound of you, and I hide. And I try to cover it up, and I try to make excuses, and I try to avoid responsibility for the things that, that I have chosen to do or to not do that I know are right and are according to your will. So, Lord, I want to respond. We want to respond to your call. That when you say, where are you? We would answer, I'm right here. And yeah, I'm, I'm hiding. I'm ashamed. And when you ask me what I've done, I'm just going to spill it. But thank you, Lord, that you have, that you pursue us, that you call us out, that you call these questions out, that you, you put your finger on the spot where we run from you the most and you, you say, I, I want to know what's going on in there. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want you to say the words so that we can mend this relationship together. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ you have provided a way for our sins to be forgiven, for them to be wiped out, and to, that we would be clothed in your righteousness, a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And that because of that, we can stand and come boldly to your throne of grace and find help in our time of need. And so, Father, would you help us to live open lives in your presence? that we would live, we would allow the shame of sin to drive us into your presence, not away from you, because we know that you love us and that you pursue us and that you call out to us and that you have open arms to welcome us home as, as that uh, father in, in Luke chapter 14, as the prodigal son comes home, he gets up and he, he gathers his robes and runs as no... Uh, patriarch would ever run to his son and he throws himself on him and kisses him and welcomes him home and, and welcomes him back as a son and not a slave. Oh Lord, we have been welcomed back into your presence, not as groveling sinners, but as sanctified sons and daughters of the King. Lord, would we just trust that that is exactly how you always treat us? You love us with an undying love as your sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. That we can come to you and we can confess our sins. And when we do that, you forgive us. And you welcome us back. Thank you for your word to us this morning. May it penetrate our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.